is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Booster shots could be coming sooner. Wall Street Journal says, according to the federal regulators, uh, they're moving to give emergency use authorization to booster shots within six months instead of the eight that we had heard. So couple months earlier. Students cost the U.S. starting the new school year on campus, but will they finish it at home? You remember weddings, people having them again, that means spending money as a guest. Let's start with booster shots and their timeline. Dr. Sandra Bliss Nelson is an infectious disease specialist with Massachusetts General Hospital. Doctor, explain this to us. Why, you know, first it was going to be eight months, now six months, maybe why? You know, I can't say that I know where the six-month versus eight-month data comes from. I think we're all a little bit um, uncertain about whether boosters are are even clearly needed at this time. This announcement has come from the White House, but the FDA has not yet approved boosters other than those for immunocompromised persons, and the CDC has not yet weighed in on this. The only reason I think that we might be talking about this six-month window is because of data that was finally released this week from Israel, which did show a decline in uh, effectiveness of the vaccine over time when you looked at people who were vaccinated back in, in December and January relative to a little bit later. But am I correct that what it showed was a decline in efficacy about being infected with the virus, uh, as opposed to a decline, a, a real decline in efficacy when it comes to serious illness, hospitalization, death. So I think what you're saying is absolutely true for the bulk of the data that has already come out. There's a lot of evidence that's come out from within the United States and many other countries, the United Kingdom, uh, Qatar, for example, that say that really what we are seeing are small declines in vaccine effectiveness over mild infection. So we are seeing more breakthrough infections, the vast majority of which are mild. But almost all of the studies have not shown any impact on severe disease to include hospitalization or death. The Israel study is the first to show that there is a change uh, in over time with uh, the effectiveness against even severe disease. Having said that, I do think that the Israel study has the potential for what we call confounders, things that are really confusing the data that may be affecting the way that we can interpret it. Okay, so we can explain that to people, and you just have for us, but there's a crowd in their car right now who are hearing you say all these things, and uh, they say, yes, we know you're a doctor, and I'm not a doctor, but um, I don't feel safe. I want my booster shot, and nothing's going to convince me otherwise. Uh, What do you say to them? So I think that, you know, we have to really ask ourselves, what is our goal of vaccination? Because if our goal is to prevent all disease, then it it is likely that that boosters will serve some role, that we think that boosters will probably reduce the number of these mild breakthrough infections. Over time, that strategy is going to become a little bit less effective. Boosters will very likely always reduce your effectiveness against these mild disease. But the memory response, which protects you against severe disease, is really what's important. And that really isn't going to be driven by the booster effect. Is there a concern that I know early on there was a concern uh, at the uh, trial level for all these vaccines about whether these vaccines might produce in some circumstances a more vigorous response to infection with the coronavirus, so having the opposite effect of, of, of preventing serious illness? And that hasn't materialized thus far, but is there a, a any serious 
possibility that once we start giving people boosters and perhaps giving them at shorter and shorter intervals, that that might occur? You know, I think that's a theoretical possibility. We haven't really seen any signals that that would be the case. The only thing that I think we're monitoring fairly closely is this concept of the multi-system inflammatory syndrome that's been seen in children. And that is something that we're looking closely to make sure that the vaccines are not mimicking. That's not the same as a, a worsened response to the infection, but an inflammatory response after the infection resolves. Outside of that, I don't think there's reason to think right now that we're going to see worsening of infection because of the vaccine. Important to note, too, right, we can give a whole bunch of people their third shots, but still you have to get the unvaccinated their first dose and uh, hopefully the second one. You know, absolutely. I think when you talk about what are the goals of vaccination, obviously we really want to protect against severe disease and death. That is by far the first and foremost goal. Preventing transmission is a secondary but incredibly important goal. And when we talk about what we can do uh, in the long run to emerge from this pandemic, it's going to be getting as many people their primary vaccine series as possible. We're not going to impact the, the goal or the pace of the pandemic through booster doses. That's only going to come from vaccinating as many people as we can who have not yet been vaccinated. I mean, did we just set our goals way too high and unrealistically high about these vaccines? I mean, most vaccines, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, most vaccines don't prevent infection. They prevent serious disease. Am I right about that? You are 100% correct in that. It's the difference between what we call sterilizing immunity, where you can never get sick, and functional immunity, which is really protecting people against severe disease. And really respiratory viruses, we don't have vaccines that cause, that lead to that sterilizing immunity. I think in some ways we were initially misled by this astronomically high results of the early stage uh, trials showing such high 95% effectiveness, even against mild infection. But, but in the long run, that probably wasn't realistic. And I think we need to reset our expectations really that we're focused on severe disease. This is probably going to be something we're going to have to live with at some level. And as long as we're, we're staying outside of the hospital and these diseases become more and more mild as they attenuate with time, that's okay. Do you worry at all that between this eight months and the six months over the last couple of weeks, people are going to have those concerns that are, their immunity is suddenly going to drop off? And Charles, you and I have said a thousand times, it's not like the next Tuesday after six months goes by that suddenly it's all right. gone. Yeah, It's you not know, a cliff. <laughs> Certainly, I think we've seen throughout this pandemic that people's fears are oftentimes unrealistic, and it's really because the science is confusing and it's moving quickly. Um, but, but I don't think that there's, abs there's absolutely no reason at this point to be worried between six months and eight months, or even if we decide, if the CDC decides next week to defer the booster doses for a little bit longer, I don't think any of us should, should worry about that. I do think we should try to protect those who have weaker immune systems, and that's already ongoing. That population is already eligible for a booster dose. Dr. Sandra Bliss Nelson, infectious disease specialist, Massachusetts General Hospital, and assistant professor at uh, Harvard Med. Doctor, thanks. The hope all over the U.S. is that kids would get back to some sort of normal by returning in person to school. But COVID has been trying to crush that hope as schools across the country have dealt with outbreaks and have had to quarantine students. Schools here in L.A. just started already 6,500 students quarantining after exposure or positive tests. Would vaccine mandates change things? Uh, can the kids going to stay on campus? Nick Melvoin, member of the L.A. School Board of Education. Uh, Nick, you've been around touring some of the schools. Your take on how things are going so far? 
I think they're going well. And these were expected challenges of reopening a school district while we're still in a pandemic. And of course, with, with Delta where it's at, some of those were unanticipated, but some of this was going to be anticipated. And LA Unified is running the largest school-based testing program in the country. And that is enabling us to catch cases early. Um, it, it's unfortunate that we had the uh, community spread at Grant Elementary, but um, that was our first uh, incident, and the other cases we were able to catch before kids are getting on campus or as soon as they have it and isolate. Um, and, you know, the 6,500 kids who are isolating doesn't mean anywhere near that many cases. We're at about 2,000 positive cases, but thanks to our layers of safety, testing, vaccinated uh, employees, masks, filtration systems, um, I, I do believe that we're moving forward, getting kids back where they need to be in school, but doing it safely and catching those positive cases as soon as they arise. Okay, so obviously once the kids have to stay home for a while, they have to shift their learning back to online. Uh, we heard from, from one parent uh, already complaining that the online learning now isn't as good, doesn't, doesn't really come up to the level that it did before. Uh, have you heard that? And if not... Uh, what do you make of that complaint? I have heard that, and I think it's fair. And I'm I'm hopeful that the district is going to update its guidance on the co- continuity of learning plan for kids who are quarantining within the next day or two. Uh, the challenge was that the state law on this is very restrictive in what we're able to do when kids are home. And I, I think this was a law that was passed when we weren't in the Delta environment. And so there wasn't an assumption that we would have so many kids quarantining. And so we have to fill out contracts with individual families about what's called short-term independent study, even if they're just gone for a few days. So that being said, the district has been revising its continuity of learning plan. And in the coming days, we'll announce an update where it does look more like it did in the spring, where if a class is quarantining, everyone's Zooming from home. Um, And if some kids are Zooming from home and a teacher's in a classroom, they might be doing some simultaneous instruction. So we're working on that now and, and hope that we can announce something better in the coming days, because I think that parent's concern is shared and is fair. I guess I'm wondering, though, how it was missed, because you've got all these different employees who are doing this, and you knew there would be cases, as you had said, we're going to send kids home throughout the next few months. So why was there no red flag raised that said, hey, you know, the the law says that we're just supposed to send you home with some worksheets, um, and that's not going to be even as good as online learning over the spring, which everybody complained about anyways. Yeah, I mean, the flags were raised by me and by others, and part of it was just capacity at the state and local level, and part of it was it was a, um, a unrealistic expectation of how many kids would be quarantining, again, when the state passed this law. So it took us, it's taken us now, you know, this is day, day nine of school, some time to work with our state partners and also work with our labor partners. We're actually meeting with our teachers union as you and I are speaking um, to try to get this clarity. So it's, uh, you know, just as we evolved, uh, I pushed over the weekend for a change in our quarantine policy so that asymptomatic vaccinated individuals don't have to quarantine. We announced that Monday. This has been iterative as, as we're learning and we're grateful for folks' flexibility uh, as in these next, you know, these first two weeks and the next few weeks where we're really um, crystallizing best practices to make sure as many kids as possible are in class learning, but we're doing so safely. You know, before uh, the kids went back to school, we had a number of uh, teachers on the show who, you know, were a little concerned that after having spent time at home for such a protracted period, uh, learning from home, that there might be some disciplinary issues that, you know, that that kids are going to go back into a classroom environment and not really know how to handle things. Uh, it, It may be a bit 
too early to tell, but so far, how is that aspect going? Well, you know, it's something that was on my mind for for the 17 months that we were closed, not only the academic learning loss, but the social emotional challenges, as you allude to. We've been gratified that the federal relief dollars have enabled us to hire mental health professionals, more psychiatric social workers, counselors, nurses, to help um, students as they come back to school. And we're seeing that that's been successful. We're also seeing that there's a shortage of these folks in California nationally. And so I was at schools this morning where we've given them funding to hire a social worker, but they haven't been able to find the individual. So that is the challenge right now for the district. And if anyone's listening who is interested in being hired, we have a lot of hiring going on. But we are seeing that while kids are excited to be there, you know, kindergarten is not mandatory in California. So we have some first graders who are coming in who have never been in school and there are those challenges. And so we're we're hiring um, and we're equipping teachers. We're doing some specific training on this uh, so that we can welcome kids back as they get acclimated to what it's like to be in school after 17 months. Is there some level where you get more concerns with kids than the number of them that are isolated? Because we have the 6,000 now, but they're going to get better or test negative. But we're going to keep having positives. I mean, you're doing the weekly testing, and you know you can't catch everybody. So if they don't get flagged this week, they're going to get flagged next week. Yeah, and so another area that I've been focusing on and ensuring the district does better is, is the contact tracing or what we're calling the community engagement piece because we are um, we have not been reaching families quickly enough either to let them know they are a close contact or more importantly, to let them know when they can go back to school and parents I know have been reaching out about that. So we the board has approved a doubling of the contracted employees who are calling families. So that is something we are ramping up. We're also, uh, or I've asked that we also revise our, our quarantine policies to see and make sure they match the county and the, in the um, most updated CDC guidance so that we don't in every case have to isolate uh, students for as long um, as we may have been doing if they're uh, we're wearing masks if the exposure was outside. So, you know, this stuff is inherently confusing. We have medical experts on our team and the science is evolving even daily in terms of what we're being told. And so we're trying to adapt because we do want to make sure the majority of our kids are back in person, but that we um, that we don't let kids who are sick come in and, and infect others. Nick Melvoin, member of the LAUSD Board of Education. Coming up after a short break, weddings. They're making a comeback. Weddings were among the many events postponed due to the pandemic, but with things more on the normal side now, more brides are walking down the aisle. That means for us, you got to buy something off the registry. Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar, with WBBM's Jim Gudis. Well, you've got a lot of couples, Jim, who are rushing in to get their weddings in. I think maybe things have been tamped down a little bit in, in the very recent past due to their Delta variant, but there was a lot of pent-up demand, and so uh, many couples are rushing to tie the knot, and so you've got a lot of people who are in that danger zone age band between like age 25 and 35 who might have 10 or more weddings in a given year. It's absolutely insane. And it also can really hurt their budgets. So what's some advice to help people with this? I mean, obviously, I guess it's like anything else. If, if you find yourself with multiple weddings, uh, I imagine that you have to kind of set a budget and a, and a limit or that sort of thing, which is kind of tough because usually when you're invited to a wedding, it's someone you like and, you want to do something nice for them. So what's the best way to keep this in check and reasonable to a degree? 
I think one of the first tests is just to ask yourself, is this something that I want to be a part of? Is, am I close to this person? And is it important that I be there? So first, make sure you're clear on that before you even get into setting a budget. You do not have to attend every wedding that you're invited to. But once you've decided to go, a couple of steps that you could take would be to you know, perhaps attend one shower if you're invited, but set the limit on that. Don't attend two or three showers. Plan to rewear some of your outfits, especially if the same people won't be showing up at these same weddings. And then I also like the idea of getting creative about gifts. So you don't want to cheap out. You want to give something special to these people who are special to you. But think about a personalized gift. Etsy has a lot of great personalized items. Sometimes they require a little bit of lead time because they're customized. But be creative. Don't assume that you have to spend a really high amount to give a high-impact gift. Can the wedding registry be your friend here, Christine? Well, absolutely. You can use the wedding registry as a starting point. And oftentimes couples really do want and need those things that they have on their wedding registry. But take a look. You can see and stay within your price point when you're shopping. And the other thing is many couples are opting for multiple venues, multiple wedding registries. So hop around, see which has the most attractive combination of gifts that can help you stay within your budget. Anything else that people can do to kind of keep an eye on things or what maybe a big mistake that people make that that kind of gets them into a bit of a financial hole? Well, a big mistake is letting letting a lot of wedding events sink your own personal finances. This is a life stage when people are really getting their financial lives off the ground, where they are planning their own futures, maybe paying for for their own educations or saving for home down payments. Really try to keep those goals front and center and don't let wedding attendance derail your own goals that you're saving for. Keep that first and foremost in your mind. That's Christine Benz, the Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar. The pandemic is having a big impact on public school enrollment. The U.S. Department of Education finds enrollment has dropped by more than one and a half million students. Some have switched to private schools or at-home learning. Others have just vanished from the system. Counselors are working the phones at one elementary school in Las Vegas. They're looking for kids still missing from class weeks after the school year began. Administrators are planning next to go door-to-door to track down their remaining lost kids. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.